the movie New Jack City came out in 1991, I was working at an investment bank and in the last year of my MBA program. I remember thinking, these dealers in the movie, they could give Wall Street traders a run for their money. They were just as smart, equally as good with money and calculations in their head, functionally doing somewhat the same thing, but with a major significant difference. One business was illegal, the other was not. Hello, 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 and welcome to More Than Money, a podcast where we have nuanced conversations about money, business, and life, where we take the time to explore the human side of money. Because success with money, it's never just about the numbers. I'm your host, Jacquette Timmons, and I'm really, really glad you've taken the time to tune in and join me today. So thank you. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know, I have a few new coaching spots available on my calendar. And if you are curious about how working together can help you and your business be more successful, be more profitable and not broke, not broke financially, not broke energetically and not broke creatively, then schedule a discovery call and let's see if there's a fit. Send me a DM on Instagram. Let me know you want to schedule a discovery call and we'll get things rolling. Now on to today's show. Recently, as part of a Black History Month event, I had the awesome pleasure of interviewing Brigitte Davis, the author of The World According to Fannie Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. It was an honor for several reasons. First, Brigitte's been a friend for many years. Second, the story of her mother is really a story of all of us in that it epitomizes the intersection of money, business, and life. So it's fitting to round out this series that we've been doing on relationships with a reflection on the discussion that she and I had particularly since it touches upon all the elements that we've addressed. That is the relationship that you have with yourself, with the important people and and influencers in your life, with money and with your business or way of making money. Because in telling her mother's story, Brigitte definitely reinforced a belief of mine, which is that all relationships take place in the context of an ecosystem of other relationships. That phrase, no man is an island, in my mind, that applies to relationships too. Plus, the book put a spotlight on the intersection of personal choices and societal slash systemic choices, highlighting this. Yes, when it comes to personal finances, you and I must take full responsibility for our own choices. But the reality that those choices are made in the context of structured inequities and historical marginalization that cannot and it must not be minimized or overlooked. Here's an example from Brigitte's book. Due to the United States history of government and private housing discrimination, Brigitte's mother couldn't buy a house in her own name. 
she had to buy it via a process known as contract for a deed. And if you are unfamiliar with this uh, practice, certainly Google it, but you can check out this Forbes article. And the title of it is The Shocking Truth 50 Years After the 1968 Fair Housing Act. And the subtitle is The Black Ownership Paradox. But in addition to the notion of no relationship is an island and recognizing the correlation between personal choices and societal slash systemic choices, something else of note about her book is something that I want you to pay attention to. And it is that it's about a woman who ended up being a pioneer, even though that's not really what she set out to be. Miss Fanny started a business at a time when it wasn't usual for women to do so. In an industry that was dominated by men, ran it for three decades, and drum roll, her business turned out to be a source of generational wealth. I hope I eventually get the link from, it was the Queens Public Library that hosted this event. And I hope to eventually get the recording of that so that I can pass that along to all of you because we definitely had a very lively conversation. And I would love for you to hear that. And I'm excited, you know, whether you listen to that interview or you go out and buy the book, which I hope you will do, I'm excited for you to meet, quote unquote, meet Miss Fanny and hear about a woman who ran, yes, an illegal business. She did so though with integrity and in the process exemplified according to Brigitte, exemplified what it looks like to value money yet not worship it. But first let's tackle perhaps the elephant in the room for you. You might have a judgment about the numbers business. You might have a preconceived notion of who plays it and why. I'll tell you, I definitely wonder if my mother ran an illegal business, would I be able to talk about it with as much grace as Brigitte does? Then I think about the intentional choices Miss Fanny made in the midst of the realities of her time and gosh darn it, I admire her anew. Yes, her business was illegal and part of an underground economy. But I have to emphasize, she ran it with integrity. And relative to other options for work, mostly domestic work back then, running a numbers business gave her agency, gave her agency over the financial security, stability, and elevation of her family. Plus, it allowed her to be a stay-at-home mother. One thing I keep in mind, and to help keep my own judgment in check, is that numbers wasn't and still isn't an immoral business. Moreover, it did a lot of good in many Black communities since it helped provide funding for the local chapters of organizations like the NAACP and the National Urban League, to name a few. Organizations that provided social services, the government did not. In Brigitte's book, she mentions 
that, quote, Detroit's numbers racket generated an estimated 94 million per year in revenue. 94 million, folks. The state didn't outlaw numbers for moral reasons. It did so because it wanted in on the financial action. Exhibit A, in the first year of the state lottery, Michigan's lottery pulled in over $135 million in gross sales. FYI, it's worth noting, state lotteries across the country, they haven't replaced the numbers business. In preparing for my interview with Brigitte, I was reminded of a widely quoted study from a few years ago with these startling stats about generational wealth. 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation. 90% will lose their wealth by the third generation. And while this study is Lisa's best that I can tell, doesn't make a distinction between white families, black families, or other families of colors, it does not matter to me. Those numbers are startling. I don't know about your reaction, but mine, each time I read them or I quote them, is simply, wow. And those stats affirm what we hear all the time. It's not about how much you make, but what you do with what you keep. As Brigitte chronicles in her book, Miss Fanny made it a habit of paying herself first and having a reserve. And both certainly played a role in her being able to start what would become the foundation for generational wealth in her family, buying property and investing in stocks. A combination that turns out funded her children's education, which for Brigitte included college and graduate school, and it also therefore enabled Brigitte and her family to buy their property. But the reserve part of this equation was really significant for more than just saving for the future. It was necessary so that she, Miss Fanny, could have the liquidity to pay the winners when their numbers hit. And she actually liked it when her clients won. Her belief was that when they won, they felt lucky and therefore would do business with her again. In my eyes, Miss Fanny was a pioneer. She flipped the script on many levels when it comes to women and money. Again, she worked in a male-dominated industry and garnered the respect of her clients and business peers. She was the breadwinner in both of her marriages. She openly talked about money with her children. She gave herself permission to deserve things and experiences that were of quality, that were expensive, and that were beautiful. And thus, by example, she gave her children permission to do the same. Now, to your 2020 year, 2022 years, I should say, none of the, of the above of what I've just quoted to you may seem all that remarkable. But you got to remember, Miss Fanny was doing this in the late 1950s, the 60s, and the 70s, when none of this was the norm. Like I said, she was a pioneer, or as I like to describe her, a quiet disruptor. 
I loved, and I truly do mean loved, reading Brigitte's open love letter to her mother. At least that's how I view her book. And drumroll, folks, I cannot wait to also see it on the big screen because uh, it has been, I don't know the proper word, but it's been optioned. And so we will soon see it on the big screen. But for me, Miss Fanny's story is one about having imagination when the odds are stacked against you. It's one about taking risks and defining what choices are considered risky, because in some people's eyes, maybe the choice that Miss Fanny made was risky and her eyes not making that choice was risky. It's one about having enough confidence and self-trust to go left whenever most others are going right. It's a story about believing in abundance and knowing that generosity creates space for even more. And it's a story that says the legacy that you can create when you value money, but choose not to worship it. The way I look at it, her story is indeed remarkable. And it's a mirror, not unlike yours. What shaped Miss Fanny's experiences, challenges, and options in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s is certainly different from what shaped yours and mine today in the 21st century, but it is a reflection nonetheless. The reflection in her case, in yours and mine, reveals how how far we've come, along with a reminder of how far we've yet to go. So I opened us up, hearkening us back to the 1991 movie, New Jack City. But if someone were to write your story and put your story in a book or put your story on screen, what lessons might they take away from it about the intersection of money, business, and life? Because don't tell me that all of those elements were not a part of that movie, because they were. What lessons might someone take away about individual and collective choices? And what might the story expose about the culture of our time, socially, politically, economically, and familially? I really would like to know. So if you have some ideas, let me know. As always, thank you so much for spending time with me today and listening all the way until the end. If today's episode has sparked a reflection, again, I'd love to hear more about it. And if it's made you curious about what it might be like for us to work together to ensure you and your business are successful, profitable, and not broke once more, not broke financially, energetically, or creatively, then schedule a discovery call and let's see if there's a fit. Send me a DM on Instagram. Let me know you want to schedule a discovery call and we'll get things rolling. If you'd like to show appreciation for this podcast or perhaps this particular episode, please share it so that we can reach more people. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review because we do read them. And if you'd like to buy me a coffee, here's how you can do that. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jaquette. Again, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jaquette. I'll be back next week. I hope you will too. Until then, remember, it's about more than money. 